Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin of Last Night in Basketball, and with less than a week before the trade deadline, a lot of interesting threads to discuss, both on the season itself and what we're looking for for the trade deadline, the implications of Zach Levine's injury, plenty more stuff. Episode is brought to you by FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first bet of $5 or more wins. So you can check that out. This episode's a little shorter than usual in part because of timing constraints on my end, but still lots of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a good time. We are less than a week before the trade deadline, and while that doesn't need to be all that we discuss, it, of course, is a significant factor in the league right now. And I think the the place I want to start with you on that is, do you think we will see anything more significant for, let's say, the arc of the league this year than the Ananobi and Siakam trades that have already happened? That's an interesting question. Um, I guess it depends on what you consider significant to the arc of the league, because I think like there's been strong reporting out there that the Bucks are going to try to do something. And insofar as they're like second in the East, then obviously they have Giannis. Any move they make seems like it might be more significant than something like Siakam to Indiana, if that makes sense. And then, you know, Oklahoma City obviously is in position to buy if they want to. There's been signals out that Minnesota wants to buy, like, uh, a backup point guard. The Knicks obviously have been in rumors involved for, you know, backup guards or wings or things like that. So I I don't know if uh, anybody that changes teams will have as big an impact on their team as Ananobi seems to have had on New York so far. But there are obviously teams at or near the top of their conference that are trying to do something. So in that sense, it could be more significant. I'm curious how you feel about that. It makes sense to me. And the other one that I'll throw in there, I don't expect to see the landscape shaping move from them. But I've really wondered how Daryl Morey is seeing what has happened over the last month. Mm -hmm. And because basically I, I wrote this whole I wrote this whole thing for The Athletic about like the Sixers being the most interesting team in the 24 offseason. And part of that was because they're, they were a very successful team, of course, less so now that Joel's, you know, dealing with this meniscus issue. But 
they also had true max cap space. Like they could get to a 30% max without too much difficulty. And there isn't a 35% guy, especially now that Kawhi is extended. And so I had this idea of like, oh, they're they're the sleeping giant. They're the team that would keep everybody with bird rights up at night. Is like, and, and the team that I focused on, and that was Toronto, where it was like, okay, you know, if you're thinking you're going to re-sign Siakam, you're thinking you're going to re-sign Inunobi, the Sixers can offer very similar money for four years. And potentially they, you know, and then they're a better team and all that type of stuff. And now, and so, so Maury at the, you know, then and then and now it's, it's weighing cap space versus making moves now. And the benefit of cap space is that there are a lot of options open to you, not just free agents, but you could trade for players and everything else, and you can do it in an imbalanced way. But the benefit of going over, which we've seen with the Pacers, is that it's easier to retain your own talent. And so for like the DeAnthony Melton part of this, or even potentially Tobias Harris if he's not matching salary, the Sixers can probably have a better team in 24-25 in if they could acquire that player. Now, the problem for them is now that those two guys are traded and now that Kawhi Leonard resigned, who is that guy either in free agency or in a trade? And I'm, I think it's just more likely that they wait because it's not sure who that is. Yeah, I don't know who would be in a trade right now. Um, obviously, people peg them as possibly a Zach Levine team, but I didn't really think that was realistic to begin with. And then now, you know, he's getting that surgery on his foot. The guy in free agency, I guess, is still hanging out there is Paul George. Obviously, has not uh, extended with the Clippers as of yet. I don't think it's going to be James Harden, obviously. But, you know, PG didn't say that, like, he guaranteed he was going to sign with the Clippers this offseason, I, I think it's pretty much thought that he will or assumed that he will. But, you know, you never know the way things turn out. If he hasn't extended by, you know, the playoffs, it's possible that something could go wrong for them in the postseason. And then he decides that he wants to get out of there for some reason or another. This is obviously all speculation and no way sourced or reporting or anything like that. It's just like thinking about the, the different guys that could possibly be on the board. But the big thing for them in these next few days is like, is Daryl trying to like salvage this season or is he trying to build for the the future around a potentially healthy Embiid and Tyrese Maxey like what does he feel about whether or not Embiid can actually play the rest of this season because that's the thing that determines more than anything else what path they're going to take in the next few days because it's it I think it determines what targets they're interested in right like it has to it has to and and i it makes me think back to something our mutual friend sam Vicini and i talked about a few weeks ago i believe that was on his podcast about how or no it was matt moore how one of the surprising things about the sixer season is how a lot of us came into it with like low expectations we worried about the risks of this year and like oh teams like the knicks are circling to well Embiid. well now they ha- now this Embiid, Maxi, and the Sixers have a pretty good idea that when they're healthy, this can work. Like they have proof of concept here, but we don't know if that proof of concept is going to bear out for the twenty three twenty four season, or more importantly, the postseason. And so that means presumably those they're going to keep it together in that form. But it does change the way that the front office thinks about not only the summer, but also, as you said, the remainder of this year, where how hard do you go after it? What is what is it looking like? And and for Embiid, it's unfortunately it's how long will it take for him to recover and what kind of a post recovery is that? Is it something where if he doesn't have surgery, you're going to be waiting, you know, like, ah, like any recurrence and then you go back down or is it like it can get to a point where it's almost as stable as it was before? 
before. And I don't know. I don't know his knee. I don't know any of these details. But to me, if if Embiid can't be right slash trusted this year, like let's, I'm not saying this is the difference. I'm not a knee expert, but if the difference is he can play, but you can't trust it without surgery, I, knowing what I know, would just do the surgery and just say this year is not as important as next year, but I'm not the one who's in charge of this. Yeah, I unfortunately am quite familiar with uh, meniscus injuries and surgeries and decisions to either get or not get surgery. But interestingly, the meniscal flap uh, tear or injury or whatever they're calling it is like the one thing that I didn't do to the meniscus in my knee. Um, (laughs) So I don't know necessarily the difference there. Um, A lot of it depends on like the location and size of the tear and whether you get it partially removed or like they used to do like, you know, full removals, just like, hey, you're bone on bone for the rest of your life, which is what I have, unfortunately, on both sides of my left knee. Um, You know, I had the the medial meniscus and the lateral meniscus both torn and they took out uh, a piece of the medial meniscus and all of the lateral meniscus, which is why I'm in so much uh, discomfort all the time. (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, like I can operate day to day as a normal person. Uh, Could I play NBA basketball? Even if I was talented enough, probably not. Um, So I I don't know necessarily what the obviously the specifics of his knee look like, but there there are different options. And depending on where it is, they could even go for repair. And that's a significantly longer recovery. That's, you know, usually measured in, you know, you know, four to six months as opposed to, you know, if you do a, a removal that you could be ready in as little as like a month, basically, yeah. um, you know, depending on, on how and, you and goes. it sounds like they're even considering non-surgical options for this, which is interesting for me. I don't know exactly how that, Yeah, I tried that um, the first time I tore my meniscus, but I, because it was only partially torn and I then injured myself while rehabbing and fully tore it, which was what led to the surgery. There are situations where, you can rehab it and strengthen it enough to where it's not necessarily a hundred percent, but like like new, basically. Like you mm-hmm. buy something online and it says like like new. There are situations where you can get away with that. That's what I did when uh, I tore my hip when I was rehabbing. I tore the opposite hip and I didn't get surgery on that. I just rehabbed and got it back to basically like like new condition. It's it's a path that you try to take if you think you can get away with it, but there are times where it just doesn't work out and you wind up having to get the surgery anyway. Um, I, For example, like this is total speculation, but I think that's what the Knicks might be doing with Julius Randle's shoulder right now. Yeah, I, it sounds like Trying to get it, yeah. away with not having surgery and seeing how it heals over these next two, three weeks or so. It, it does seem like that's the way it goes. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't think there's as much that we can get on the Sixers thread. So let's – no, let's, let's finish out. So – I don't know. You brought up like, I don't know who they would trade for. I agree with you on that. And they have some resources. They would theoretically have more in the summer just based on the passage of time opens up draft picks and various other things. But like, I don't even know who necessarily they're targeting at this point, especially considering it looks not definitively, not binding, but it looks like Ananobi and Siakam will probably stay where they are now. And so, you know, there aren't that many strong players left and it's, it's not really that kind of market. And there are some like Drew Hall that could conceptually be a fit and of course he has familiarity with philly but he's also on a really good team right now and there there are plenty of reasons for boston to want to retain him even if drew holiday's offensive game hasn't been quite what they what they hope for and the challenge of the trade route let's say it's somebody who's under contract for for 24 25 and beyond ideally is that 
then you have a, another party you have to negotiate with. And that party has, even if you can do them more of a favor, like, for example, if they, if a team that is looking to offload salary has a good player, like, they, there are benefits to them of doing a deal with Philly as opposed to somebody cobbling together mediocre matching salary somewhere else. But you have to make, you have to give up assets in that sort of deal because any player that's worth getting is going to be worth assets. Yeah, and honestly, I don't even know who that would be. Like, is the best guy out there for them that makes the most sense for them? Is that like DeMar DeRozan, right? Like, and and I don't know how much that really changes their life. I mean, theoretically, they could be, I mean, I don't know that anyone involved really wants it, but they could be a, a Donovan Mitchell destination if he decides he doesn't want to be in Cleveland anymore this summer. That oh, would be, I meant uh, in the next oh, the three days. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Like, that's, it's... It's very challenging, and they could do something like uh, in the mock in the mock deadline. They ended up getting Josh Giddy, which was a, a fascinating concept. Where basically you get a player who has a low enough cap hold, who you know doesn't, or in his case, it's an actual salary, who doesn't like change the arc too much. Like you could use some resources to get that, but it's those are hard to find. Those are tricky, and you know even finding a player like that who's workable. And yeah, and and especially like there are there are definitely players we don't know who they are who will open up in the summer, especially if they know Philly is available. But they're probably not going to do that now. Like for example, even if Lowry Markkinen decided he would rather be in Philadelphia than in Utah, and the Jazz aren't super competitive, it just doesn't seem like a move that would happen right now. Yeah, especially not because like. The Jazz have been playing well. I mean, I know that recently not quite as well as like maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, when they went on that like 15-4 run or whatever it was. Right. And, you know, they've been much better in the last month than they had been earlier in the season when they had like a million guys out. And I think if the – let me bring it up. Yeah. I mean, if the season ended right now as we're having this conversation, potentially changing depending on what happens in both the Rockets and – jazz games later tonight the jazz would be in the plant at least so you know that, that doesn't necessarily look like a situation where they just say all right we're pulling the plug like we're we're trading larry marketing right now that, that doesn't seem to be the situation that they're in exactly so i also like- think like even if uh the sixers wanted that there are just so many teams that could outbid them for a guy like that and if anyone's going to open the bidding on a player, it's going to be Danny Ainge. Like, that's just the way he does things. He's not going to just take take a single offer unless it's just comically good for him, which there have been times when, of course, it has been. But I don't I don't expect it. It, it feels like a Maury Ainge negotiation would be pulling teeth rather than the Ainge Billy <laughs> King negotiation that led to the basically the forming of of Boston's current core. And so I agree with you. I, I think that Philly, it has gotten to be a significantly tougher spot because there just aren't that many suitable players left. I don't know if they were big Siakam people or big Ananobi people in the first place. Like It may be that those weren't the targets, but there just aren't that many. And I don't know if they were that interested in Kawhi. I, it seemed to me like no one was thinking Kawhi was truly available this summer. And he, of course, now actually isn't available because he signed the extension. We'll see if Paul George joins him or does not. I would assume that James Harden probably not going back for logical reasons. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Happy Super Bowl to all who celebrate from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. If you're like me, Super Bowl Sunday is all about scoring the best seat on the couch, grabbing your favorite football snacks, and placing some super bets 
especially for me as someone who grew up in the Bay Area who is a 49ers fan. I'm extremely excited about that. And of course, there are a lot of great player props. And I I don't know if I'm more optimistic or realistic, but I'd I'd love for the Niners to do well. And of course, there's always the fun. You can bet on the length of the national anthem and all sorts of other great stuff. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W or two or three. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets for which players will score a touchdown, how many points will be scored, and so much more. New customers join today and you'll get $200 in bonus bets if your first bet of $5 or more wins. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Boston to sign up. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or over and present in select states. FanDuel is offering sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as a non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533 533- Four two in Arizona one eight eight seven eight nine seven 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 or ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut one eight hundred nine with it in Indiana one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call. 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. So let's go to the Knicks. I mean, team that you are geographically closest to, they have been on an absolute terror in the month of January. How much of that for you is sustainable? Um, you know, to the extent that they're going to be uh, 15 and three, like, mm-hmm. no, like <laughs> no, nobody plays that well, you know, unless you're going to win 70 games, right? Like 15 and three, that's, I guess you would get to 60 and 12. So that's like a 65, 66 win pace for the season or something along those lines. I don't think that they're that good. Um, I, I do think that they are a team that just makes much more sense now when, at least when they're healthy. Because the way that Ananobi fits with Randall and Brunson just makes so much more sense than the way R.J. Barrett did. I think you saw uh, yesterday against the Lakers that they have you know, a pretty big issue with the lack of secondary ball handlers right now, um, which is why the names that you hear them connected to on the trade market is like you know, Malcolm Brogdon, Jordan Clarkson, Bruce Brown, those kind of guys, um, you know, sort of like the backup point guard that can't possibly play with Brunson types. Um, that's the thing that, that this year's version of the team needs. And I think, you know, Fred Katz has talked about this a bunch. The ideal scenario for them would be to get that guy that is still under contract next year at a sizable enough number that if they wanted to make their long awaited superstar trade this summer, they could put him in that trade and he would be considered, you know, at least a neutral or better asset. So they don't have to dip into, you know, trading like Mitchell Robinson or Josh Hart or Dante DiVincenzo or one of those guys that's, you know, in their rotation that seems to be part of their core group of guys. I think that, you know, for that reason, to me, Brogdon and Brown make the most sense because they're both, you know, are making over. $20 million, both are guys that you could play in the role that 
you need them to play over these next few months and could also potentially be guys that you even keep around if you can't make that deal this summer um that that's sort of where i'm at in terms of their options but you know as far as what's sustainable like the way Ananobi has changed both their offense and their defense, and I think the way specifically Hartenstein in for Mitchell Robinson has opened things up offensively for them. They just access so many different areas of the floor with that group out there than they did when Mitch was the guy that was involved in all their screens and dribble handoffs. Just Hartenstein is a more well-rounded offensive player in terms of his ability to do like dribble handoffs and to make passes from the elbow and things like that. I think it opened things up for them a little bit more offensively but their their ceiling defensively i think is higher with robinson and obviously if he gets back that would help them significantly because they could you know have 48 minutes of those guys as opposed to whatever it is with hartenstein and then you know whatever you get out of precious achua they're sustainably very good i don't know how 15 and 3 sustainable they are I'm really happy you brought up Hartenstein's impact on the offense. It's something that I've really noticed watching the Knicks over the last little while. Is just that it gives them it gives them a little bit more fluidity, which is which is important. And when you think about New York as a potential playoff team and the ways that other teams can come up the works, and that doesn't mean I'm saying definitively Hartenstein should start over Mitchell Robinson. They should trade Mitchell Robinson. Anything like that. It's just it's nice to have a different angle. And and I would be I understand why Thibodeau was in the in the early stretch was very reluctant to move Hartenstein off of the second unit, you know, like to keep the second unit because having his playmaking is very useful with their bench lineups, but it opens things up with their starters too. So there'll, there'll be mm-hmm. some balancing to do there if and when Mitchell Robinson returns, whether that's this year or not. We know that they applied and were rejected for the disabled player exception, which, which was weird for a variety of different reasons. And for Ananobi, it has been such an impressive, such a seamless fit. I think defensively, that's going to make sense to a lot of people. Do you want to shed some light on why you think it's been such a good offensive fit? Yeah, um, I mean, the best way I could do it is suggest that people go read Chris Herring's story on it at ESPN. He, um, you know, I think did a great job of explaining exactly why it's worked so well. And it was basically the theory that people had exactly when the Knicks made the trade, which is like it essentially has like democratized their offense where they no longer have like a third guy who needs the ball all the time to be his best self. And the ball, for the most part, is with Brunson and Randall and everybody else. Their roles sort of fit in line and they move around better and they move around more often. Their assist rate is up significantly since they made that move because there's more cutting and there's more passing. And Ananobi is obviously, you know, like a, a better shooter and is more willing to both play and move without the ball. And the way he's been able to capitalize on the the ways that Brunson and Randall bend the defense in their direction, and then with the way he's been able to capitalize on, you know, the way that DiVincenzo can bend the defense with his shooting, and the way both of them have spaced the floor for Brunson and Randall, and the way Hartenstein has opened things up because he's able to operate further from the rim, it just makes everything flow much more seamlessly than it did when they had you know another guy who was more of a you know straight line downhill attacker who defenses helped off of when he was in the corner or on the wing and who you know was best with the ball in his hands it just makes things click in much more seamlessly there are some truly jaw-dropping numbers acknowledging the small sample size here of some of the Knicks combinations when you include Ananobi which means it's the stretch where they've been molten hot overall so 
Brunson, Randall, and Anobi on the four. 582 clean the glass positions, so not that many. Plus 26 net rating, which is <laughs> astonishing. And then you're like, well, what about Brunson and Anobi, no Randall? Like now we're down to 152, plus 45.7 net rating. And then just Anobi and Brunson, plus 30 in 734 possessions. So that is ridiculous. That is not the type of thing that you necessarily expect to sustain. But what you brought up in terms of democratizing the offense and the way that it can flow, it is it is a structure that allows you to not only use a non-shooting center, which they are a fair, you know, they are basically all the time with Hart. Now, Achua, you know, at times has had visions of being a shooting center, though that hasn't typically <laughs> materialized. But then also, like, you don't need players like DiVincenzo or Josh Hart to do quite as much. And that, but they can. And that's not to say yeah, that except they... Except when, uh, when Randall and Ananobi are both out and you sure. apparently need uh, Achua to play 44 minutes a night and even <laughs> Genzo and Brunson to play the entire second half like they played five guys 80 minutes in three days incredible and that's a part like, of that's a part of why they um I only watched a portion of the game but it, it they seemed tired during the game against the Lakers on Saturday oh I mean they went like six full minutes without scoring in the fourth quarter because they were all completely gassed and finally someone decided like hey we're literally just not going to let Jalen Brunson shoot we don't care what else happens like somebody else is going to have to do something and they just couldn't do it for like six minutes um I would expect that the reason Evan Fournier hasn't played in these last uh four games where they've been without both Randall and Ananobi is because they expect to get something done with him in these next four days and they don't want him to get hurt and potentially derail it but that's just me sort of, you know, assuming logical coaching, which isn't always the case. Not always. And and I mean, until the last game against the Lakers, like there is this weird thing, like they kept on winning. And so a coach mm-hmm. is like where you a coach will lean on a lineup, will lean on a player until it doesn't work. And then they'll reassess like there's it's the old like, right. well, um, at least they had out. Quentin Grimes for the play for the previous games. So they were playing at least eight guys. Yeah. Yesterday they were playing like six and a half guys. They were. And and I agree with you on the logic with Fournier. I think that and and did, and you brought it up before and and I, I it bears some emphasis that the goal with Fournier's potentially expiring contract is to get a player who has a 24-25 element that is significantly better than the team option they have on Fournier. Because like, the problem with the team option that is overvalued is the most likely outcome is you just decline it and then it's done. And and in a less extreme version than like what the Clippers were dealing with with Eric Gordon, because in that case, they that just added so much to their tax bill. The Knicks aren't really going to actually sacrifice that much financially. It'll, you know, cost stolen money, but probably not tax stuff to keep to keep somebody around. And so the but the goal is it's not only who can help you now. Like I mean, I think that all the guys you mentioned, Brunson and I mean, I've thought of them as a potential D'Angelo Russell destination. But the challenge with him is he has a player option. And so with the player option, you have to assume that the player is going to make the correct decision. And so that means that if he mm-hmm. picks up the option, he's not worth it. And if he declines the option, then you probably don't want to re- – then he's going to make more money and it might lead to other challenges. So yeah, I think the bigger issue with them and D'Angelo Russell is that you're counting on Thibodeau to play him. And I do not see that marriage of uh, <laughs> skill set and personality and whatnot going mm-hmm. All that well. Not all that well, but with the concept with Russell that could be valuable for the Knicks is 
getting somebody who Tibbs trusts less, so he mainly uses him as a Brunson backup. Like that, that they need somebody who can do that now. To, in my opinion, like even though they've gotten a little bit more supplemental creation from some of the guys in their bench, I think they could have that. The challenge is that I don't think Tibbs would trust him to do anything more than that. Whereas somebody like Brunson, that becomes significantly more plausible, palatable as long as he's healthy. Um, somebody like Brogdon, you mean? Brogdon, sorry. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Different, 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 um, different BN, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to figure out where you were going with that. Yeah. I was like, wait, something like Brunson? Yeah, second no, no, Brunson. I think I think that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are the guys. I think that's the pool they're sort of treading in. The the issue, obviously, they've also been connected to guys like uh, like Clarkson and um, Alec Burks. The issue with Burks is that he's expiring, and they don't get that 24-25 element that they could put him in a trade. And the issue with Clarkson is this year he's on a balloon payment, and salary goes way down next year, and it makes it more difficult to match things in a trade. Plus you have the element of, like, is Tibbs going to play Clarkson, which I don't think you would necessarily have with someone like Brogdon or someone like Brown. It's a great point and something that Leon Rose is going to have to navigate for the remainder, the like for this deadline and kind of how they want to piece together. And I'm sure another consideration is, are, the, are those teams going to be demanding assets? But I don't think that most of them have the leverage to, to, to get something significant, in part because of the volume. Now, maybe that leads to Danny Inge just keeping Jordan Clarkson. Sure, that's not a problem. And then Brogdon, I mean, the Blazers have done a lot of posturing, and we're going to find out much more clearly at this deadline whether that is real or that is not. If both Jeremy Grant and Malcolm Brogdon are on the Blazers a week from now, I will... I'm not going to say well played because I don't think that's what they should do, but I will be like, I will believe you a lot more when you say these things moving forward. Yeah, I mean, he did draw the line in the sand and then not actually trade Dame to Miami. So there is at least some track record of I'm not doing this and then him not doing that. Um, But he also got but he also got the return that he was looking for from someone else. Right. Eventually. Um, so the other kind of main topic that I wanted to discuss with you, uh, and this is something Nate and I probably aren't going to have the time to do before the deadline, is how some of these teams more on the margins are self-evaluating, because that's another huge factor in the way that the de- deadline actually shakes out. And it's always worth emphasizing that the way the people involved evaluate it and the way you and I evaluate it are often not the same. And that is because they're so looking... basically you want to talk about the bulls. Well, the, the bulls are <laughs> the bulls are one of them, but I mean another one that is just as if not more interesting to me is the Warriors, where mm. the Warriors have there are certain elements of their decision making over the next six months that are going to kind of be there either way, and like one big part of that is like what in the world they end up doing with Clay Thompson after this year. But for example, they will have decisions to make with Andrew Wiggins, who is under contract at what would be reasonable terms if he didn't play horrendously for the entire year like he has pretty much so far. But also this huge question mark that is Chris Paul's salary for next year. And just, I don't want to dwell too much on it, but Chris Paul, flat $30 million non-guarantee for next year. Not a team option, a non-guarantee, and that distinction could matter a lot here. Because what is that the wor- a full non-guarantee? It, is a, it is a full non-guarantee. So what that means is, sort of like his former teammate Eric Gordon, the Warriors could, they could retain Chris Paul to keep him. That is, of course, an option. They could pick, they could basically guarantee his contract and then either keep him or use him as 
ballast in a trade, which would be a lot, very, very expensive for them. Or if assuming he makes it through the end of the year in the roster, they could just decline that. And reminder that if you cut a non-guaranteed player, then it does make it a little bit harder to retain them. You know, like you have to use you have to use another exception. You know, just be like, oh, tr- if he doesn't get claimed, you get full board rights. Everything's all good. Like that's not the way this works. Yeah, it's um, they got a lot of decisions to make. None of them are easy i don't think like yeah, the Clay al- Thompson. Al- almost like the person who used to run the team deciding not to run the team anymore made a reasonable choice for his like i'm not saying this is why bob did it i don't know for his mental health like the idea of like the the rest of this is going to be hard oh yeah i mean like it's it's uh it's complicated um what are there there's two years left for steph after this year correct right and it seems like other than Draymond, when he's being himself, their next best guys are like all rookies and Kaminga. And that's like a, re- a really complicated thing to untangle when you have two years left of a guy who looks like he still should be able to drive like really high level winning. But like 75, 80 percent of their cap is weighed down by guys that are just not either not contributing because they're injured or are contributing really poorly because they're not who they used to be anymore. And it's just like how you untangle all of those things, especially with, you know, at least one guy who was like a franchise legend, probably the the second most beloved player in like the history of the team. Like, I, I don't know how you deal with all that stuff. Like, I don't envy, you know, Mike Dunleavy Jr. for trying to figure this out. The additional huge factor that I think has been an underappreciated problem for the Warriors this year, and part of this is that I see so many of their games in person, is that Clay Thompson no longer being viable as an on-ball defender has completely changed the Warriors' defense. Because in part, you, you you can add in Gary Payton being hurt for a lot of the year, but they weren't starting him really anyway, is that at times they could use Wiggins, at times now they've been using Kaminga. So like, for example, Kaminga fouled out last night because he was the primary defender on Trey Young, at least late. I didn't watch most of the early part of the game as I don't usually watch Warriors road games. And and so that that's a huge problem. So it's, it's it, you know it has to be because it's not going to be you don't really want it to be Steph that's burning the candle at both ends. He's not also particularly great at it, and so it has to be someone else. And you get into all these other problems. And most of the players, especially the ones that they have available, who are good at that, aren't doing a lot of other stuff that's going on. And so it's it's a challenge. And like Clay. If he shoots well and you know can, can do all these other things, he uh, he can still be a positive player. But his pathway to it is even more narrow than it was before. And like how Clay did it before, it was narrow. But it's like be one of the best shooters of all time, be a very good defender. And so he did that. And then now they're kind of trying to figure out the other elements of it. And f- so there are big threads here. And I mean, it's it's financial, it's personal, it's. How do you how do you resolve a dynasty in a way that satisfies everyone? And you know, like the Draymond general the contract structure, I think that that satisfied it. But then he's of course had his issues this year, and I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> I don't know that things with Clay will work out the same. And the way that they possibly could is if Clay, you know, he let's say he makes a big demand of the Warriors. They're not saying he will, but let's say he does, and then they go, "Well, just see if you can find it somewhere else on the market. And if you can find it, then then we'll consider giving it to you." And then he just can't. And then that kind of squares up some of the financial stuff. Like I had this theory that there's a possibility, not saying a probability or anything like that, that the Warriors are out of the tax entirely next year. And 
can do that without necessarily sacrificing that much in team quality. They have really missed Chris Paul when he's been out with his hand, with his broken hand. But they could, you know, they could piece a couple of things together. If you get a, a capable backup point guard with the mid-level exception, for example, you could you could do some things there or buy it. Like, and theoretically, if they shed enough salary in Chris Paul and if Clay, whether it's he's gone or he takes a severe discount, that you could actually get the buyout, the big buyout guys, they, they could maybe get something interesting there. But yeah, it is a lot to a lot to take in for them. And then for the Bulls, I think that in many ways it is an acceptance of reality, I guess is probably the way that I would describe it. And I mean, there has not been an acceptance of reality overall there. I mean, the Vucevic technically extension, even though it was signed right before the right before things started. Or the, you know, like the murmurs about what's going on with what they're at, what they're kind of thinking with Caruso and everything else. It's like, yeah, it's pretty logical that what they should do is trade the things that aren't nailed down and build a new vision, even if it's going to take three, four years for them to be relevant again. But I am exceedingly skeptical that that's going to be what happens, but I'd be thrilled to be wrong. Yeah, I thought Nate brought up a good point related to Caruso on uh, the mock deadline where he's like, this guy's 30 and seemingly can't play more than like 25 minutes a night. And if he loses like 5% on defense, all of a sudden he has like no value around the league. So you should try to get what you can now and not insist on like four first round picks for this guy. Um, But that also requires the Bulls to show like a level of awareness of where they stand in the hierarchy of the league and whether there's any realistic possibility of that changing anytime soon. And that's just not something we've seen from them, um, you know, in either in recent years or in not so recent years going back to, you know, like the early two thousands. But with golden state, I think the issue for me is that they finally found their two timelines guys, but it seems like it may have come like a year or two too late because Kerr wasn't willing to trust Kaminga and especially Moody to play through mistakes over the last couple of years um, in a way that let him pop early enough and Kerr and like earn Kerr's trust so that he could have been, you know, an integral player for them before the last like two weeks when he's been absolutely destroying things on both ends of the floor. Like imagine if they were getting this Kaminga in the starting lineup the entire year instead of running whatever Wiggins was out there early in the season, you know, like and just those guys sort of popped too late comparatively to, you know, where Wiggins has been this season and where Clay has been this season. And then, you know, all of it has happened pretty much like since Chris broke his hand like you know even Pajemski sort of emerged mostly after that even though he had had been playing in some lineups with Chris Paul and then like Jackson Davis played really well for a stretch and now all of a sudden he's like not playing again like the way they've handled their younger guys and sort of like not let them play through mistakes has sort of undermined their own idea of what this you know whole two timelines thing was going to be like those guys I think to a lesser extent with Pajemski and Jackson Davis because they're rookies, but like they, they should have known what they had in Kaminga and Moody coming into this season, and they didn't because they wouldn't play them over these last couple of years. A couple of different things there worth dwelling on for a second. So one of them is it's been really jarring over the last couple of weeks to see how much the Warriors needed this boost of athleticism. Like, they have become a deeply unathletic team over the last Mm -hmm. few years. And they were never, like, Steph and Clay were never beasts in that way, and Draymond, you know, that that is what... But they usually surrounded them. You could think about, you know, Iguodala's taper off in that respect, and... 
that you would usually have one or two other guys like Gary Payton who would fly around and could do this stuff. Wiggins, of course, when he was available or in the earlier days, HB and, and various different guys. That's been huge. The other thing, and I don't know that this is fair, but I also think it's worth we're saying I, I've said this to people on press row a lot this year. It feels to me like Steve Kerr has a patience for some kinds of young guy mistakes and not for others. And so it seems mm-hmm. to me like he has had significantly more understanding with the mistakes that Brandon Pajemski makes. Like sometimes he like goes for a steal and it's not quite there or he'll, you know, he'll, like they're kind of their sins of like over over aggression sometimes like he's try he's mm-hmm. trying something and all that but he's not usually taking bad shots he's not you know like generating bad possessions necessarily in that sense and so it it seems like it it doesn't trigger Steve Kerr's sensibilities in the way that Kuminga and Moody did for a long time. And, and Moody, like, for me, it was always flashes with him rather than the possession by possession. Like, he was never the defensive player I wanted him to be. I mean, I loved his film going back to when he was in college. And with Kuminga, I mean, yes, he does appear to be a better player now than he was two years ago. But there was a complete lack of patience for those kinds of miscues. And what's has to be frustrating for Warriors fans about that is, as you said, having more patience for those then would have theoretically led to a reduction in them now. Yeah, and also would have led to a reduction in their reliance on guys like Clay and Wiggins, because these guys would have been ready from the jump and they would have known they could count on them from the jump. And I think especially with Kaminga, like you said, like you said, Moody was more flashes and like every once in a while and like in the games where all the other guys were out and things like that. Kaminga, I think we saw, even when he was a rookie, how badly they needed that athleticism that you mentioned earlier. Like, even two years ago, and, and like, obviously, you know, they, they won the title, so it doesn't really matter uh, in the interim. But, like, you could see how much he got them going in the open court and how, like, he gave them sort of a, a rim runner type of guy when he was al- allowed to play like that, that they didn't really have in their other incarnations and just the the way he's defended i think in these last couple weeks like they haven't had that since wiggins in the finals you know like even when gary payton's been healthy because kaminga is so much bigger it's like a totally different thing it is and it's made a world of difference for them in the in the remaining time that we have before we we part ways i want to throw out a couple different teams for you and and i think just kind of work through it a little bit and so I don't think of them as that compelling, but so there's this group of teams in the East that are below 500, but not like catastrophically, other than if we're counting the Raptors there at this point, because they're now, I think, 14 under. But the Bulls, we already talked about, the Hawks, the Nets, the Raptors. And for them, it's not only what are we, where are we going, but what is the difference between those two approaches? So like, I don't think anyone expects the Hawks or the Raptors to be buyers. There's been some reporting that the Nets might be. But there's a difference between holding Pat and selling and aggressively selling. And some of that will be dependent on the offers you receive. And it should be. Like, that's the way it works. But there are still plenty of benefits to weighing those approaches. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Hawks, obviously, there's been a lot around DeJounte Murray, although there has been some recently of, like, maybe they might not be quite as willing to deal him and maybe they think they could get more in the summer or maybe they don't want to deal him at all like who knows with the hawks um but they've got you know their their cadre of relatively disappointing non jalen johnson wings basically that they could deal from too you know guys like aj griffin or sadiq bay or deandre hunter 
Um, there, there's a bunch of different things they could do there. Clint Capella and then you know make Anyeka Kongu the starting center. Like there are so many different paths they can pursue, but it also gets much less complicated for them to do that in the off season than it is now, just because it's it's just way easier to make trades when you don't have to worry about roster spots and salary caps quite as much. Um, you know the Nets. I understand that it's hard to admit that the team isn't as good as what you thought it was going to be, um, but they've got guys that could help teams that are pretty far ahead of them, and that's they seem like they should at least be able to get like you should be able to get like multiple seconds for Royce O'Neal or a first or a protected first or whatever for Dorian Finney-Smith. Like they should be willing to like how much do they want to pay Nick Claxton this summer? And like if they don't want to do that. Is there a team out there that's going to be a buyer for him, like you know, like uh, like the Raptors were for Pirtle last last uh, last deadline? You know, like it's there, there's a bunch of interesting directions they can go. And then Toronto, I mean, like they they should just be trying to find takers for for Gary Trent and Dennis Schroeder, right? Like what what else are they doing there? Especially with Trent because he's an expiring contract and I wouldn't be too excited about giving Trent his next contract as the Raptors, especially with the flexibility that they have. Flexibility doesn't always bear fruit, but it can. And with Schroeder, you listen, you see what is out there, but he also could, you could generate some interest with him and he, um, it's, yeah, yeah, like, so it's, it's interesting, um, to like, so maybe you, you I mean, I've I brought up the idea of like that he could potentially is he could especially be good for the Lakers if they end up trading D'Lo in a deal. But you could argue that you know getting you know the person they would trade D'Lo for would probably be involved there. But yeah, I, I think that you're you're broadly right. And the complication for the Raps, which I I'm going to start keying in on a little bit more, is the you brought up the the kind of the Pirtle situation. Is their pick is top t- top six protected from the Pirtle trade and. It's you're never going to get it because of how bad the bottom is. You're not going to get into the four best lottery odds. There is a none chance. Like I would say the Raptors right now, they've won 17 games. I don't think any of the four worst teams in the league. I'm not sure any of them are getting to 17. But this is just I'm going to actually do the full math on this at some point. If the Raptors end up with the fifth or sixth worst record in the league, they have a better than 50% chance, I believe, of keeping that pick. And yes, there is the potential embarrassment of giving the seventh or eighth pick to the Spurs, but that's a pretty big benefit to me. And I think this is a, this has been important to me. I watched the, the game where they got crushed by the Rockets, which was interesting, where they can, I think they, if Masai is comfortable with it, they, and Darko Ryakovich to an extent, I had had Eric Green on last week, they can still evaluate the fit of quickly and Barnes and all this stuff, and they can still lose a bunch of games. Like, this is not a team as currently constructed where we'll see with Pirtle being back necessarily, where their best is going to like keep them out of keep them out of that like worst of everyone else group. Yeah, and uh, with with quickly and Barrett back now too, they both missed uh, a bunch Sometime. of time. Exactly. Um, yeah, they are. Let's see, they are sixth in worst record right now, and if they stayed there. It's a like a fifty four percent chance that they would lose the pick that they would land at, um, or sorry, fifty four plus eight sixty two. It's there's like a sixty three percent chance that they would lose it if they stayed with the four, the the sixth worst record because they could then land six seven eight nine ten. Um, granted, only a point one percent chance at ten, but if you move up to or down. 
down, up, I don't know, to the fifth worst record, then there's only like a, let's see, 30, it's like 35. Yeah, there's only like a 42% chance that you keep it. So it would be like, that seems wrong. I might be doing some some bad math here. Uh, yeah, so there would be like a 50-something percent chance that they would keep the pick. Like, uh, low, or, sorry, low 40s percent chance that they would keep it as opposed to like mid-30s. This is good radio, you know, like me trying to do math live on air. It is, but I, I appreciate it all the same. And I'm, yeah, and so for me, like there, there's a lot of talk of like, oh, there aren't that many, there aren't that many sellers, there aren't that many buyers. But for me, it's that group of teams of like, really, what are they trying to do? And then the, we brought this up with the Knicks in terms of like the different kind of backup ball handlers that they could get with Malcolm Brogdon mm-hmm. and potentially D'Lo and everything else is for some of these players and situations, there are multiple options. And so if one of these teams wants to be a hardliner for whatever reason, and you could think about the the forward derby, I, I wrote about the forward carousel also, with not that they're the same type of players, but like Kuzma and Grant and a few others where some teams my some teams are going to make moves because they need to. Some teams are going to hold on to players because they think that's best. And so I think that one of the challenges is going to be how much does it take for these teams that can hold on to their guys? Grant is probably the best example of this to actually get them interested. And if they're holding firm, if they would rather just see how the rest of the year plays out and do something in in June, then the supply just gets narrowed and it might just be too hard to get a deal done. Yeah, that makes it like it, it only takes, you know, there's the it only takes one team to make you an, an offer that makes like your life good enough for you to make the deal. But it also only takes a guy being willing to say, like, no, I'm not doing it. And then all of a sudden the guys you want are not available, you know, like and it's you can't make a trade without someone willing to trade with you. This is something that I've talked about with, with friends all the time where, like, I remember a couple of years ago, before they wound up signing Jalen Brunson, um, I had friends who were annoyed that the Knicks didn't trade up to go get uh, Jaden Ivey. And I was like, well, you know, Detroit has to, like, want what they're offering for them to go up and get this guy. Like, you can't just do it because you want to. So, like, you know, the the Knicks want, like, a backup ball handler. You know, the, 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 the Timberwolves want a backup point guard. Like, somebody has to be willing to trade you the thing that you want in exchange for a value that you find agreeable. And given the given the identity of the teams that are in position to be the sellers of the type of players that the buying teams want, I do think there's a distinct possibility that, like, not as much gets done as teams want to get done because it, it's hard to deal with with certain teams in certain situations. Especially when kicking the can down the road is a viable choice. And mm-hmm. there aren't that many circumstances this year where teams have to make moves. And I give the Raptors credit for moving, whether they felt they had to or not. We don't, we'll, we'll never quite know. But the Bulls might not. You know, we could, we could see other teams in that circumstance. And so that presents its own challenges. It's going to be... It's going to be a very important deadline, not necessarily because of the moves that get made, but partially for the moves that don't, and how those age. Like I've brought this up with various different players where it's like the the path of the status quo is risky too in some of these circumstances, especially 
in some ways if you are a bad team. We're like, I don't think that Kyle Kuzma is going to increase his value significantly other than his contract looking better over the next six months because the Wizards are objectively terrible. And mm. so, and it's not like he fits in like a glove on this team or anything like that. So I wonder which of these sort of like we talked about with the Raptors last year, which of these teams will regret not making a move? I think that's going to in time be the bigger story than the moves that do get made. You mean perhaps like the Bulls and DeMar DeRozan? Correct. Uh, you know, uh, or Caruso. <laughs> yeah, or Caruso. Like yeah. at least Caruso, I think has what one more year after this. Or he two? does. At a very, he has one more year at a very team friendly number. Yeah, but uh, Demar's expiring, right? Like correct. He's, and he's not like why would he stick around there? There's going to be teams that are going to be interested in him, even you know, even if it's just for like a year or two to be like, yeah, you can be you know our second, third guy, whatever it is. Like he, he's still good, you know. Like exactly. And obviously the Bulls are very much not so. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, but that's the way it goes with, with some certain teams, you know? It absolutely is, and I will thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a good time. Bob, Bob, thanks again to Jared Dubin for coming on. You can read his excellent work at Last Night in Basketball, which conveniently, lastnightinbasketball.com is the URL there, and so much great stuff. I'm so happy I'm a subscriber. Both Jared does great text you know, analysis, but also great video work, which I'm jealous of because I am terrible at everything involving video and he is very, very good. You can also follow him on Blue Sky, J A D U B I N, number five, dot B S K Y dot social. And as I said, love having him on. And we will know a lot more about kind of the rest of the season and everything after the trade deadline, though my instinct is a lot of the biggest moves have already happened. You know, the Ananobi and Siakam deal, but I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. And, you know, it's more fun if, if more things happen. So we will have to see. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of things you can do. You can subscribe and download the podcast in whatever podcast player you use. And if our show is not in a player that you would like it to be in, please let me know. And I will pass that up the chain to people who can actually solve that problem, which is not me. I don't have the technical expertise. You can also help other people find the show by leaving a rating and review in that podcast player or word of mouth or social media. All of those things are greatly appreciated. But the most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio or any other show that has them is to check out our sponsors for us, FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first bet of $5 or more wins and plenty of things that you can wager on with the Super Bowl coming up. Lots of fun. And of course, as a Niners fan, I am very invested in that one week from today as I'm recording this. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I try to reply. I'm not the greatest at replying. I acknowledge that right now, but that is what it is. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.